The following program may offend those with delicate constitutions, Baptists, FCC commissioners, and the former Soviet Republic of Uzbekistan. It's Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Russian dissident Alexei Navalny was poisoned, he believes, and evidence points to the Russian state. The official EU finding says such actions could occur, quote, only with the consent of the presidential executive office, i.e. Vladimir Putin. Navalny almost died, came very close to dying. The nerve agent Novichok is extremely potent, but he pulled out of a medically induced coma. And rather than stay in Germany, where he was treated, or flee to the UK, where the actuarial tables put his lifespan far north of what it would be if he returned to Moscow, he did just that, knowing the consequences. And he felt those consequences almost immediately, arrested, and as Sky News reports. He will be going to jail to a penal colony, a corrective penal colony for two years and eight months. That was the decision of the court after a long day uh, in court where Navalny himself seemed clearly extremely frustrated by the uh, legal minutiae uh, that he was being hit with by the prosecution. Uh, He was sarcastic. He accused them of being essentially muppets of the state. Muppet of the state. Just just noting that, Jim Henson, your work on this earth is now complete. You've now replaced the idiom. Navalny said to the Russians, you can't poison me. Putin said, yeah, I can. Navalny said, you can't jail me. Putin said, yeah, yeah, I really can. There are now mass protests supporting Navalny. And the activists are saying is one, well, you could jail one man, but you can't jail all of us. And Putin is saying, yeah, we can. We really, really can. We certainly can. Are you familiar with the gulags? We jailed millions of people. We have Siberia, the Novichok of regions. The time zone in Siberia, it's officially listed as doesn't matter. Off. N.A. There's a problem with gulags, however. Problem for the Russian state. And it's that they're expensive. So Putin goes after high-profile figures like Pussy Riot or Navalny to send a cost-effective message to kind of oversee a mental carceral state. Navalny actually addressed this aspect of Putin's strategy in court today when he said, quote, the main thing in this whole trial isn't what happens to me. Locking me up isn't difficult. What matters most is why this is happening. This is happening to intimidate large numbers of people. They're imprisoning one person to frighten millions. Yeah, that is true. Now, I can't think of any country any other situation in the world where protests and activism actually seem so fruitless? It's sad, but my assessment is that there are regimes that are more brutal. The Iranians come to mind. Our allies, the Saudis, they publicly execute as a tactic. The Russians don't do that. But Putin is, I would say, the strongest of strong men. You never get a whiff of weakness. Not that he doesn't make mistakes, but even when he stumbles on the geopolitical level, I think maybe invading Crimea cost him more than it helped him. There were still benefits to him. Even his mistakes he utilizes to some degree to boost his status at home. I would bet that every repressive regime in the world has a greater chance of falling before Putin's Russia. The word that comes to mind to describe him is cunning. And his last four years of relations with the United States certainly do nothing to make me think he's not an extremely skilled dictator, as skilled a dictator as there is in the world today. 
So credit to Alexei Navalny and all those standing with him. But I do take issue with one thing he said in the doc today before sentencing. According to the translation, Navalny said, quote, I'm fighting as best I can, and I will continue to do so despite the fact that I'm now under the control of people who love to smear everything with chemical weapons. My life isn't worth two cents, but I will do everything I can so that the law prevails. That is heroic. That is inspiring. That is self-effacing. But I truly hope Navalny realizes the bravest thing he can do is to stay alive. On the show today, I spiel about vaccine efficacy, the range of affliction. But first, Jill Lepore is back to discuss her book, If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future, which is easy to assess from here, which is the present. You look back and you say, oh yeah, they kind of did. But at the time, in the 50s, when simulmatics was the idea of predicting human behavior via machine, that was an idea that was exciting and fantastical and just like today, quite flawed. Jill Lepore after this. Cambridge Analytica sought to position itself as an all-knowing, amoral force that could deliver votes to campaigns. They weren't actually very good at what they did because, you know, the grift is always intertwined with every effort in Trump world. But I think actually that was kind of a business decision. You overpromise with a wink that implies, you know, we, we can't really tell you how deep this goes. But trust us, pretty deep. We're pretty bad. Then on the other hand, you have Facebook and Google who hold themselves out as mostly benign forces delivering market insights with a smile. And in fact, they are better at delivering on this promise than Cambridge Analytica, the self-consciously nefarious Cambridge Analytica. But Google and Facebook and those of their ilk, they're actually pretty shady, aren't they? So today, I asked Jill Lepore, author of If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future, what aspects of big data today drove her to unearth its history? In a way, one of the things I was really fascinated by, I don't know that I even ever put this into the book, but I became really fascinated by the trap that is the code. That is to say, you know, the languages that aren't really languages, but, you know, the the, the shorthand that is used to communicate, be, uh, for a person to communicate with a computer just follows the math, the language that's used in mathematical proofs, right? So an if-then statement, right? Like you do the same thing when you're doing math, right? Like you're just going to write it out. If this, then you know, if x, then y. It's a syntax that works in the context of mathematical proofs. But then it is applied by behavioral scientists to try to predict human behavior. And it can only anticipate certain kinds of logics, right? <laughs> so in a way, you know, computers can only do what the language that is used to instruct computers to do can comprehend. And the language itself it's not poetry, it, you know. It's not sculpture. It's not the. It's not the. It's not the language of of a blade of grass. It's not the language of a starry sky. It's you know. It's a, a certain language of a very strict sense of contingency. It, it just doesn't encompass the human condition, and it and it and it can't. But the aspiration for this to be what intelligence is, right? Like the the, the way that it dismisses so much. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a computer scientist years ago when I said, I just don't understand about, you know, the kind of training or the artificial intelligence for trying to develop the intelligence of a machine. 
like why did none of these people ever look at how babies learn language like why isn't why isn't robotics mainly about infancy (laughs) and it's like i don't think these guys are not that interested in infancy (laughs) like if there's anything that would illuminate it it would be you know if anything the maternal relationship with an infant with a newborn right like what is what is that capacity for learning and the sharing of knowledge is there a model there but that's like it couldn't be further from the model that's available, I, I think, kind of cognitively to most of the people who are trying to think about machines. Oh, that's so interesting. So I think the first time I heard about this topic was an article you wrote in The New Yorker in 2015, and it was called Politics and the New Machine. And I said to myself, wait, how do I know this? And then I looked it up. I'm like, oh, yeah, Jill Lepore wrote that. That makes sense. But when you wrote that article, which was about from polling to data science and what it means for democracy. If you would, can you reflect on the paucity of very accurate polls in the last election? And would you amend your thesis at all based on what we just saw in terms of the fact that, you know, polls did seem to lead us astray more than they shed light? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are two problems with polls that I was trying to trace when I worked on that essay. And I, I don't think either of them have been addressed One is polls are getting worse. They're getting less and less reliable. And that has to do with the declining response rate. So if you look at the history of the public opinion measurement industry, which really is born in its modern form in the 1930s when Gallup founds the American Institute for Public Opinion Research, when, you know, Gallup was working, conversations with people who were being polled were like 90-minute long conversations, and the response rate was above 90%. We're now looking at a response rate like around 3%. A lot of the mathematical work that pollsters do is try to compensate for that low response rate with all kinds of weighting the responses. So, you know, if if what you needed to represent a population, you needed 14 Latino men and what you got was one, then you count that guy's response 14 times. And that counts as, you know, a proper weighting of of representation within the population. And that obviously is going to lead to all kinds of distortions. And then there's also the poll aggregation that like the 538 does, right? Like, well, let's, if all the polls have problems, we'll aggregate them and we'll come up with a better representation of public opinion. These problems aren't really, have not been solved. And although I think there have been a lot of reforms in the polling industry, because there's been a lot of kind of chicken little talk of the sky is falling. There's been a lot of self-scrutiny and breast thumping. I think there's something fundamentally undermining of democracy in the constant assessment of the public's opinion with an eye to what is, I think, really akin to direct democracy instead of a representative democracy. So like I talked to data scientists who I said, like, what is like, what's the end game here? Like if you could make your people machine better and better and better. Like, what are you hoping to do? Like, what would be the ideal? Like, how do you know when you've designed the perfect machine? And the perfect machine is something like this, like where I'm a member of Congress, I'm going to go into the House chamber to vote on a piece of legislation. I think I should vote against this legislation because I've researched it. My staff has given me white papers. I've talked to experts in the field. I think this is a bad piece of legislation. I think it's bad for the country, bad for my constituents. I disagree with it. And right before I walk into the hall, my phone goes off and it's giving me an instant, completely accurate poll of my constituents and they want me to vote yes. And I'm supposed to therefore vote yes because the poll is so accurate, like because our data science is so perfect. That 
is exactly not what I'm supposed to do, right? Like, I'm not a delegate. And this is where I think, like, something about our civic culture, we've lost the distinction between a delegate and a representative. I'm not a delegate. I'm not there to do the people's bidding. I'm a representative. I'm there to represent the people's interests as I, as a person who has been chosen by them, understands that interest and the interest of everyone. Remember last year at the impeachment, where there was a whole lot of, like, the Democrats saying, well, we have to, we favor impeachment because Twitter says, and it's like, well, okay, actually, the right thing to do is impeach the president. It's 2019. Look what he just did in this Ukraine phone call. Not like people on Twitter are all like head up about it. <laughs> like, it's weird to me that we accept that as a, a this is a separate yes. question, right, of accepting Twitter as a proxy for public opinion. It's not. But even if they were talking about polls, while well, the polls say, and like Pelosi said that at the time, the polls say, it's like, it's not a public opinion mechanism. Impeachment is like you impeach the president if it's the right thing to do, if he's violated the, the Constitution. Yeah, on something stark like that. I think it's, I mean, I've talked about this on my show a lot, but I think it's hard because I think it's actually a little more subtle on the great right and wrong issues of the day. Damn it, do the right thing. But politicians do have to, if there is a way, look, I'm all in favor of information and knowledge. And if it is true that your constituency, who might reward you or punish you based on how you represent their opinions, if your constituency is four square against something that you think probably wouldn't be bad, it's probably good to know that your constituency is appalled by it. I could give you an example. Like when they did polling in New York about stop and frisk, if Michael Bloomberg had looked at that polling and saw where the black and Puerto Rican and Hispanic communities were on it. I don't know, but maybe he would have changed his mind a little. An example of how polling actually affects the constituency versus your ideal of what you should do. So there are some times when maybe you should look at polling. There are some times when maybe you shouldn't. But I think maybe the most insidious thing that we don't think about is how it prescribes a politician and how a politician might say, well, I'm never even going to propose this solution because I know it won't be popular. And guess what? Maybe if that politician did or all the politicians did, you change people's minds, especially since people aren't paying so close attention to all the issues. So I do think it's it's more subtle than just, you know, ignore the polling. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I and I don't mean to throw out the the bathwater, the baby and everything else and every last public opinion poll within the tub. There's a weirdly insufficient criticism of that aspect of it. Like, I think when people want to, you know, get angry about the polls, they're talking about the polls being wrong. And that is a problem. <laughs> like, that's a problem. We should be concerned about that. My, like, waving my hand is to say, wait, but also, shouldn't we ask, are they actually good? Not good, accurate, but good, morally right, democratic, good results. I think polling is essentially dead, right? Like, why bother calling someone and asking what she thinks? You already know. You have the data. Like, that's just data science. You know, it's data collection, data mining, and data analysis now. There's much greater potential for the demeaning of democratic processes. Mm. So I read your Wonder Woman book, and I compared it to this. And in one, you're taking something that's iconic. Everyone knows Wonder Woman. And what you're doing is you're finding layers that we didn't know existed. You're exploring it and making us re-see it in a new light. With this book, you're pointing to something that almost everyone forgot if they ever knew it in the first place. Do you enjoy one more than the other? And are there challenges to one more than the other? Well, what they have in common is the exploring the undiscovered. So, you know, there are historians who write presidential biographies, which you can write, you know, mostly from presidential papers, which are collected and, you know, that are at the presidential libraries and 
if you can get interviews with powerful people, if it's a recent president, right? But like, it's a known subject. Like that, to me, just is really unappealing. Like, I'm just not interested in revisiting a well-thumbed book in that way. So both of these projects involve like, what are you on about again? (laughs) Again, I would say of everything I've ever written, the Wonder Woman book is is maybe the thing that kind of most legibly is about something that people know. Like Wonder Woman's incredibly well known, right? She's like the, the most recognizable pop icon of feminism in the history of feminism and one of the most recognizable superheroes. But yeah, for me, what I loved about writing the Wonder Woman book was um, everything that I was finding out was undiscovered because it basically relied on a family secret. Like, and the family had been understandably super private about the family story that lies behind the creation of the character. And that also gave me an opportunity to tell, to deliver a lot of history of women's rights, like a sort of smuggled in history of feminism in that book that I think people who read about comic books don't really care about the history of feminism and people who read about feminism don't know anything about the history of Wonder Woman. Like it was just it was like explosively fun. Like it was the delight every day. And like every day at dinner when I came home from the archive, I would say, you can't even believe what I just found today. <laughs> and it would be like, it was super, super fun. The Simulmatic story, I was unbelievably compelled by because I'm so befuddled by the cultural authority that people who run these companies have. The free reign over our democratic life and our culture that they seem to get like who gave these guys the get out of jail free card like I don't understand that like where did that it drives me nuts and so I had I had my own question I wanted to get an answer to in finding about Simulmatic so it was driven by a sense of political urgency I think whereas like the Wonder Woman book like I knew the answer to the history of feminism (laughs) like I didn't know anything about the history of behavioral science tell us wait you do (laughs) let us know yeah so um, I think a lot of feminists want to know (laughs) how it ends up (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, I noticed that you did a lot of uh, not only there's a lot of uh, feminism or the history thereof in this book, there's uh, occasional references to comic books. Like you'd say uh, Aquaman debuted in 1941, which was a reflection (laughs) of our concern about the war in the Pacific. Yeah, I I, um, I'm a Hanna-Barbera. I'm a child of Hanna-Barbera, man. I watch the Super Friends like it stays with you. (laughs) If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future is the name of the book. Jill Lepore is its author. Also, she has an excellent podcast, The Last Archives from Pushkin. Just wanted to, just wanted to plug that too, because I enjoyed both of those works. Jill, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. And now the spiel. The first noble truth of the Buddha is that life is suffering. Now, of course, the Buddha didn't speak English, so he used the word dukkha, a variation of Sanskrit, which could mean suffering, or from what I understand, of my interpretation of dukkha, it could mean something like stress. So life is stress or life is suffering. But maybe let's not even concentrate on suffering. Let's concentrate on life. Maybe when the Buddha said life is suffering, he only meant the parts of life that were, say, commercial air travel or watching Wonder Woman 84. And he is right about that. But my question about life being suffering isn't what he meant by life or what he meant by suffering. It's how much, what is the range of the suffering? There's suffering and then there's suffering. Luckily, the U.S. pharmaceutical industry puts a name to that range. 
I have moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Now there's Skyrizi. I thought I was managing my moderate to severe Crohn's disease. Emerge Tremfiant. With Tremphia, adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. With moderate to severe Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, Stellara can provide relief. That's moderate to severely annoying. But I always just thought the whole moderate to severe thing, just a convention. Or maybe it was an FDA requirement that you had to put into the pharma ads. Just like the warning, people allergic to idiosa shouldn't take idiosa. Or people unfamiliar with the definition of allergic should take dictionaria for moderate to severe ignorosa. It was just a drug ad thing. Like, you know, how drug ads all have their things, like approachable, non-model-looking people wearing primary colors, chasing a butterfly, or going from a world of haziness to a world of clearness, or picking up their grandchildren and tossing them in the air and then turning to the camera and saying, thanks, Olanta, thanks, Erlanta, thanks, Uplanta. Moderate to severe. It's not the alpha and omega of suffering, but it's like the lambda and omega. Until real public health officials in a real important pandemic came to be using the same phrase. I was moderately to severely surprised to hear the phrase sneaking in this context. It's phase three trial in the U.S. found the vaccine is 72% effective in preventing moderate to severe symptoms four weeks after vaccination. That was about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Look, I know that moderate to severe, those are both real words. They have real meanings. They're not changing the meanings of what the words mean. But when you hear a phrase like this in a commercial so often, you come to think of it like, I don't know, ring around the collar or that not so fresh feeling. They're actual words. They're not farfignugan, but you know, they're used only in the promotional context. But there's something else I want to point out about medication, very important medication, very important vaccines today, and it's the question of effectiveness. Now, you just heard the claim about 72% effective in that phase three trial, according to other trials. In the more than 44,000 person study, the vaccine prevented 66% of moderate to severe cases of COVID-19. That's according to J&J on Friday. I would like to point out if there is an even distribution of moderate cases and severe cases, if you're 100% effective in preventing the moderate cases, or even, you know, 99% effective, to get to a 66% overall threshold for the moderate to severe cases, with the severe cases, you only have to be 30% effective, which is to say largely ineffective. I don't want to scare anyone about taking the vaccine. I don't think that's really what's going on with the vaccine. Sometimes the drugs, they talk about effective in preventing it. That's the vaccine. And sometimes with these drugs, these over-the-counter or prescription pharmaceuticals, they're talking about treating the disease. So moderate to severe takes on a different meaning then. In general, what I'm talking about, and I've thought of this, like, well, moderate to severe. Could you break it down in a little more detail? I'm talking about your plaques, psoriasis, your eczemas, or maybe it's eczema. The effectiveness in treating the moderate version could be doing the bulk, the vast majority of the lifting when it comes to the severe version. Oh, and then there's this. I've been hearing this one a lot lately. Heard about Eucrisa for mild to moderate eczema? It can be used almost everywhere, on almost everybody. Mild to moderate. Mild eczema. What's mild eczema? I could treat mild eczema with Jurgens, can I? I'm going to have to listen to one ad about a drug, 
and see what they claim about moderate to severe treatment. And then a different version of the ad, maybe different approachable actors, a different butterfly, different primary colors, and see what that ad has to say about the mild to moderate version. Then I'm going to have to take these two claims, triangulate, calculate, do a little regression analysis. I will then be able to figure out how much skin flaking off I could count on. Then I heard this claim, which seems like all the other COVID claims of effective vaccines. But listen closely to this one. The antiviral drug will be made available in India under the brand named Fabiflu. It has been priced at rupees 103 per tablet and has proven to be effective for mild to moderate COVID cases. Ooh, Fabiflu sounds more flu than Fabi. Mild COVID cases, they're worry for, you know, combating the spread of the disease. But for the individual, I'd be much more worried about the severe. I wouldn't be that psyched to take a vaccine that's pretty good against mild to moderate cases. It's actually unclear when you think about it what these claims are saying. What does it mean it will prevent moderate to mild or even moderate to severe COVID? Like, will it prevent COVID or won't it prevent COVID? Are they saying you might get the COVID, but if so, it will only be mild? But how's that really a vaccine that will stamp out the spread of COVID? I I think we have to take those claims with the phrase, the mild to moderate, and disregard them. And we just go with the overall numbers that we heard in the beginning that are still true, that the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, I think the AstraZeneca vaccine is in this category, you know, upwards 90 something percent effective, very effective. And we'll take that without the qualifiers and we should take that vaccine. And that at least is a bit more clear and not as annoying as all the rest of it, mild to moderately annoying though it may be. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth is the GIST producer and the mother of a pair of adorable twins, Stellara and Solara. Margaret Kelly, GIST producer, is here with a multiple choice quiz. Which one's the prescription drug and which one is a planet from one of the Star Trek series? Are you ready? Tremphia, Cravaria, Dremophore, and Tivio. Do I have to say them again? Is this one of those contexts where you could just roll back? I'll say them again. Tremphia, Cravaria, Dremophore and Tivio. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is here with the answer. Craveria was mentioned on Deep Space Nine. And Dremophore? It's actually Drema, Roman numeral four. And that is, of course, the home of Data's friend, Sarjenka, played by a young Nikki Cox. The gist. You know, if I wanted to pick a letter in the exact middle of the Greek alphabet, it should have been a mu or a nu. But when you're picking a letter from an alphabet that's old, you don't want to pick something like nu. Um, Oomperu, depperu, duperu, mu and nu. Thanks for listening.